everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And oh, man, I am just really grinning because I have known Roger Braswell for almost 20 years. So I've known him longer than anybody else, maybe with the exception of Brian Koch, Um, because I, I knew Brian before I knew Roger. But man, we have some history. <laughs> and I have seen this man go through the ringer. We both kind of did. But I've seen such a man of integrity, resolution, resilience, transparency. And so I cannot wait for you listeners to hear the story of Roger Braswell. It's amazing. And he is even more amazing. So, Roger, as we've heard a little bit before we started with the recording button, you and Teresa, your wife, uh, and we want to talk a little bit more about that because you've had a marriage that has lasted quite well and you've done really well in that. So there are so many aspects of your life that we want to go down. But you are uh, at another gym parking lot following your grandson, Stephen, as he's in one of the top 20 uh, basketball teams in the country, uh, Moravian Prep. And so you are walking into the gymnasium and somebody sees you and they say, Hey, that's Roger Braswell. They start talking about you. Don't realize that you can overhear everything that they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you? So Gary, I think um, I'd want them to say, there goes a guy who's, uh, who's okay with just being himself. He's okay with being who he is, but his life is not all about himself. So I would hope that's what they would say. I had a, uh, a good friend who I've mentored. He's the CEO of a very successful company. And he gave me a high compliment by saying, you know, the one thing I've learned from you, Roger, is that it's okay to just be who I am. So that's freedom in yeah. so many ways. Yeah. And, and the, the combination of those two things is difficult too, right? Of being yourself, but focusing on yourself too much and getting selfish or vice versa. If you're focusing on other people, then you start sacrificing, you become too selfless. So I like that combination that you would put in there of, of needing both. Being yourself without being about yourself. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So real quick, before we jump in, for those who, who do not know Roger yet, Roger's the owner and chairman at the Southern shade tree company. He's chairman of the Integra group and give hope global. He's also a business advisor and board member at multiple other companies. And before all of that, as if that weren't enough, he previously was the founder and CEO of Compact Power Equipment until selling that business to the Home Depot in 2017. So, Roger, I want you to take us back and just give us a brief uh, brief synopsis of what you were doing prior to founding Compact Power. So look, I started my career in high school in the landscape contracting business and uh, started a company called Braswell's Lawn and Landscape Company. And and uh, a few years later, at the ripe old age of 24, I acquired the Southern Shade Tree Company from, from Ralph Boone and uh, renamed it the Southern Tree and Landscape Company in January of 77 and uh, ran that business for 20 plus years. And in June of 98, uh, joined up with six other uh, uh, company owners and rolled our businesses together and did an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange called Landcare USA. 
And uh, we sold that business to the service master company a short time later within the first year of going public. And, uh, and I helped them launch their business and grow what was at the time the largest landscape company on the planet, about $850 million of revenues in landscape and about nine hundred fifty in lawn care under the True Green Lawn Care and True Green Land Care banner. Uh, and then got off after a couple of years. Uh, it was either moved to Memphis or or changed change course. So I changed course and and got into the the equipment business, which is how I met Gary, by the way. And so launched a company called Compact Power and uh, and was distributing equipment and renting equipment. Eventually, I landed a deal with the Home Depot that allowed us to go nationwide and really continent-wide. We were all across Canada and the U.S., even Puerto Rico in that business, doing equipment rental and servicing in partnership with the Home Depot and eventually sold the business to them in 2017. So, um, so I've been in and around the landscape contracting industry for since 1968. So what is that? Uh, I haven't run the numbers lately. 55 <laughs> years. Ago, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So having having that first company and, and IPO IPOing very normal path for people, right? Um, so talk to us a little bit about um, before the IPO of just the fact of that becoming a possibility and option. Uh, was that a goal of yours when you were starting the first company? Was it part of the conversation with those six other owners? Talk to us a little bit about the behind the scenes there. Yeah, so the goal, you know, I can remember being 16, riding a snapper 30-inch, seven-horsepower riding mower, thinking someday my company is going to be so big that I'm going to pull up on a job site and the people working for me won't even know who I am. And so that was my idea of how big wow. I wanted the company to be. So, And by the way, I had no employees at that moment. So, so uh so that's happened more times than I can count, I guess, the undercover boss thing. But um, yeah, so then I got off and, and uh, grew the landscape business. And really, from 1968 to 1998, that 30-year period from being 16 to being 46, I just sort of kept my head down and worked like a madman, I guess, you know, kind of day in, day out, week in, week out, uh, all hours. And and grew what by that time was the largest landscape business in the Carolinas, and um, and then I got a phone call one day from a guy out of Houston saying he was working with some guys who wanted to back a landscape roll up. Roll ups were a big deal at the time, and uh, and and create the first publicly traded landscape company. So I thought, man, this guy's crazy. But I, he left me a voicemail. So I walked down the hall with my cell phone and played it for my partners and said, should we even talk to this guy? We said, yeah, he's, he sounds crazy. Let's talk to him. His name is Steve Cook. And, and so he's still one of my closest friends to this day. We've done 16 private equity transactions since that time. And so together with various enterprises. And uh, yeah, so he had this concept along with some guys out of Houston who who were had backed some other roll-ups and and we started finding people who were willing to do it and the seven of us came together and formed a company and it was called a poof company uh, Ben at the time so you you um, get Arthur Anderson came in and audited all of us 
and and then you know did a business plan as if we were one business and on the day of going public the merger happened and so one day you were not yet a business the next day poof you were a business so they called it a poof company right yeah so yeah it's pretty amazing yeah it was um so let's let's go into your that crossroads of saying you could move to memphis or you could pivot and go a different direction uh, so what led to the that creation of, of Compact? What, what did that look like for you? Yeah, so um, after going public, uh, we were we were competing with True Green, who was owned by ServiceMaster, to make acquisitions. So our, our roll-up, we, we acquired 30 businesses from uh, June of 98 to January of 99. And at the same time, they were acquiring businesses. And so they, they came to us and made an offer. And it was sort of the old, make them an offer they can't refuse. Uh, we, you know, we weren't really excited about not being our own public company, but the offer was just too good to walk from. So we had other shareholders, shareholders to consider. So we had to take the offer effectively and did. And so then went to work with, with them on a collective basis of, Together, we acquired over 70 landscape businesses in, in short order. But before all that had started, before we even did the first public offering, I had found a little machine made in Australia called the Dingo and began to import it to the U.S. and um, and had eventually sold that to the Toro company. But it helped them launch that business by training their dealers and distributors. I had a, had a team of guys around the country that were doing that. And so that was concurrent with going public. So I had a lot going on at the time. Um, and uh, after kind of growing with True Green, they asked me to, to move to Memphis and become VP of operations over the entire operation, which was 850 million. I was running half the country, Southeast, Southwest. Liked the job, loved the job, wanted to do it, but that was non-negotiable to move to Memphis. And uh, my wife and I had been married a long time, had a, have a farm here right outside of Charlotte, and all of our friends and support was here, so I was not going to pick her up, move her to Memphis, buy a house there, offered to buy a condo and be back and forth, and, and they said, no, you've got to, got to move your wife and be resident here, and I said, well, don't think I'm going to do that, so that's how I then decided to go launch the Compact Power business was... Uh, I went back to the True Green leadership and said, look, uh, I'm just not going to do it. If I'm not going to lead, I'll get out of the way and let somebody else do it. So, so that's how I did, kind of formed the idea to go start this other business, which which Gary and his friends eventually invested in. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Go, Gary. You're good. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I don't remember if – so I was – on the board and I had invested in this company in 2004. And I don't remember if we had invested in you in 04 yet or not, but in 2005, you came to our first partner gathering and we, we had to um, relocate at the last minute. We had this big gathering planned and it was gonna be in Houston. The problem was there was a hurricane that was barreling down and gonna hit Houston and it did. So we had to go inland and we went up to Tulsa, Oklahoma, right. and you brought <laughs> some of the Mertz equipment that you were manufacturing. Right. And we had people <laughs> driving skid steers and stuff like that in the parking lot of the Marriott. <laughs> and that was, right. that was when I first 
I'm sure that was the first time I actually met you. We had talked on the phone uh, as just part of, you know, our kind of, um, I think we had monthly or quarterly calls. I think we had monthly calls though. And uh, so anyway, that was. <laughs> yeah, your original investment was December of 03. Okay. That was when you made the original investment. And then you're right. We, that I'll never forget the trip to Tulsa and, and uh, meeting you guys in person. I think that's the first time I'd met any of you. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. So well, yeah, there's, you know, by the way, that the story is, it's probably too long to tell on a podcast, but most of it is, is written down in this book that I wrote called stepping into the moment. So maybe your folks could pick that up from Amazon and, and get even more detail about all of that with Toro and Home Depot and, uh, and uh, yeah, it all played out. Yeah. So we'll, the podcast is nice for the snippets, right? And then they can read the book for the full thing. Yeah. Uh, Roger, how did the transition from I, the idea of compact to the actual implementation happening? Uh, how, how did that look for you? Right. What did, because you're leaving a pretty established situation that you had been doing for years. So you've got this crossroads. You decide not to move to Memphis. You've got this idea. Take us through the idea to implementation of Compact. Yeah. So it was a bit of two stages. So um, uh, we first launched. So we had sold the Dingo rights to the Toro company. And uh, and they were manufacturing it. And, the, and we had royalties to be earned as it was sold over time. And the distribution was getting a slower start than I wanted. So the first thing that we did was to launch a, a nine small dealerships to sell that product. Now, the Dingo is a stand-owned machine like a Bobcat, but rather than sit in it, you stand on it. And uh, it was originally made in Australia. We sold those manufacturing rights to, to the Toro company and uh and they were manufacturing it so we launched these dealerships and uh and so i'm made and made the decision not to go to memphis i'm thinking i'm too young to retire and uh i need to do something with myself and so i could open up these dealerships and and really speed up this distribution for the machine the the royalties ran out after so many years so we need out there was some urgency to to sell more machines. And, uh, and so we did that and, uh, got, got underway with it. And uh, frankly, it didn't go as well as I had hoped. And then subsequently the, uh, the distribution strategy changed at the Toro company, sort of, um, making the, my business model not effective. And I had to come up with a different strategy. So, so enter Steve Cook again, by the way, who had talked me into going public with Landcare. And I said, Steve, and this is a point worth making. I said, I have this idea to kind of relaunch this business as uh, less of a retail and more of a wholesale operation and potentially get into the rental business. And so we, we came up with a business plan. And what I learned and have since learned from Steve is um, once you are launching a new startup business, and you have the model in mind and you have the plan in mind, you start to treat it as if it already existed, if it's real. And I've never known anybody better than Steve Cook at just taking an idea and treating it as, it, as, as if it is already real 
when you're talking to to lenders and investors and people that you want to come alongside you as vendors and customers, uh, you don't say if I can do it. It's it's just if you've already done it, right? And uh, and I will give him a lot of credit for teaching me that and for helping me launch that business, get investors. It it was quite a story. We had investors and we lost one and then we lost another one and then we had to go back and find more people. At, at the end, I had to find, um, uh, let's see, it was about a million dollars of angel investors. And I found 700,000 and I was the last 300,000 and Gary's group was part of the 700. And, uh, uh, and so it was down to like two days where the deal was going to fall apart. And I'm trying to borrow money against my house for the last 300,000 bucks. And the guy I'd counted on to do it backed out on me at the last minute. Now I was down to 24 hours to find somebody to finance the house. And this guy named Jeff Bell, who I knew through an acquaintance, I called him, explained it. He said, I'll get it done. And 24 hours later, we had, had the deal done and we saved our, our larger program, which is a five, five and a half million dollar investment, but I had to get the last 300 and pull it all off. And uh, I would just say that, that, uh, you know, the idea of, we had a, we had an idea what we wanted to do. We made it look real on paper. We had a, you know, a good financial plan. We had a good business model and, uh, and we were able to attract people to the idea, even though it didn't yet exist. And, uh, and that's a powerful uh, thing to do with an idea is to treat it as if, as if it's already real. Yeah. Um, what were what were some of the things or lessons uh, learned, I guess, from your first business ventures that you were able to apply in this creation and implementation of, of Compact? Because you had so many years of not only running your own business, but also being around other people that have a wealth of, of business ownership and, and business leadership experience. Yeah, so... Um... Some some of this we ended up building into our into our model, but I mean into our uh, motto slash mission, which by the way became this: our mission is to delight our clients, grow our business, earn a profit, and reward our team. Kind of four parts to it. So I'd say the first thing I learned was the idea that you don't have a business if you don't delight your client. Not not good enough to satisfy them. You, you've got to learn how to de- delight them and, and make fans out of them. That's that's certainly something I learned. The second thing was <laughs> business is more flexible than you think it is, and it's it's more resilient than you give it credit for at times. So never ever 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 give up. It's uh, you're gonna you're gonna be faced with so many turning points when the easy thing to do would be to throw in the towel. But if you just keep digging and looking for the for the right solutions, they'll come to you. One other thing that I observed was this, there's always something that's going to happen behind the scenes that makes all the difference that I don't really control, whether it's another client coming to the table or somebody that's that shows up that's gonna loan me money or you know, there's always something that I don't control, but what I do control is staying in business long enough for it to happen. And, uh, you know, I've, I've got to stay in business for those things beside behind the scenes to happen in my favor. Eventually they will. If I, if I persevere and delight my clients and, and stay in business. 
yeah. that uh, that survival aspect is is the most important, right? You just got to stick around long enough, and and things will be able to come together. Yeah, yeah. You you know, I would say that as I've done it more often, I've gotten a little better at predicting what's going to happen and bringing those outcomes about on the first effort. But but things never happen exactly like you think they're going to happen. Right. And that's where you've got to be ready to stick it out. Yeah. Yep. How do, that's that's a great point. How do you handle that um, in in your business ventures or leadership? Are you somebody that wants to put together 15 different plans for all of the contingencies? Or is it more of we're going to stay nimble and be able to move as things come up? Yeah, you know, I've I've got a 32-year CFO who's been with me. Maybe it's 33. He's always correcting me about the exact number of years. He's better with numbers, right? That that's makes right. He's the, <laughs> he's the numbers guy for sure. And uh, um, so, you know, doing these things together, we've learned a lot. Re rephrase your question for me one more time. Yeah. yeah. So you were talking about the fact that nothing goes as planned. So I... Are you, I'm curious of, are you somebody that wants to have all the contingencies and if something happens, we know how to react? Or is it more of being flexible and nimble of as things come up, we will pivot to what we need to do? Yeah. So Norman is my longtime CFO. And first thing he says is that the first day of the period, your budget is wrong, right? <laughs> but but he and I both are totally committed to to, uh, to planning. What we find is that by putting that into into numbers and putting it into writing and and committing to it, our chances of ending up very close to it go up exponentially versus you know being less specific. So we have you know we have a five year plan by month out in front of us all the time that says you know this is what it looks like in in October of 2025 for us, right? Yep. Now, you know, our, our plan for January was not right. All I would tell you, we blew it out of the water. We actually, it wasn't right because we did a lot better than we said we would. The other thing I've learned is the value of a little bit of conservatism in my plan so I could beat it. But, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not the guy that's got to have 15 contingency plans. I'm the guy that's got a plan, got a fairly detailed plan, and, and I'm always ready to pivot wherever I need to pivot. But I don't want I don't want to be, you know, paralyzed, the paralysis of analysis kind of thing. Easy yeah. to fall into that too. Very easy to fall into that. Yeah, that absolutely is. What I want to do is I want to hear about, you know, when we went into the downturn, you had you had bought Mertz equipment manufacturer in Oklahoma, I think, wasn't it? That's right. That's correct. And so you were manufacturing. Some of these skid steers. Um, it's funny. I didn't know the dingo story. I didn't know that you had imported those because all the landscaping guys that I know, they have dingo rodeos. You know, they're right. they're yeah. doing stuff with those dingos. Right. So it's that that's another part of your story I did not know. But um, one thing that I have observed about you, Roger, you you have always been a a man of just very deep thoughtfulness, uh, very frank and honesty um, and t integrity. And, and it wasn't until things got really bad when the world is blown apart and our company was just 
disintegrating right underneath our feet. And, um, and you were battling some, you know, big headwinds with Mertz and that sort of thing. And yet I'd be on the phone with you because I was the last guy standing in our company when it all shook, shook down and 11 offices are gone and 90 people are gone. And it was such a, a deep and dark spot, at least for me and so many people. Um, and I know that you were battling um, ferociously as well. And yet you you would always say, you'd tell me the truth. There were a lot of people ducking and hiding at that time. They didn't want to talk. They were avoiding phone calls because there, there was not good news in many places. But you always took the call and we were always on call as, as a, you know, as scheduled. And, and it was pretty rocky at that time. You know, I want to hear about some of those things because if the listeners are hearing, wow, you know, this guy has, you know, been working hard and he, imports these dingoes, sells it to Toro. He's part of the largest IPO. He's like everything he touches turns to gold, right? Well, there are some things that <laughs> we experienced and you came out on the other side. I mean, what you're talking about on your kind of, hey, you know, one of the things that you got to do, things happen, but you just got to stay in business long enough to let it happen. That was a that was a foundational and pivotal moment and it wasn't just a moment it was a an excruciating time talk to us a little bit about what happened during that downturn with compact power and um you know one other thing that i think would be good is like discuss what all is included in compact power if, if you go to home depot like how would you know what's compact power yeah okay so uh that's Two different questions. One is what we what we started as and how we got through it, and then the other is what we ended as, right? And what is it today? Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah, Gary, so, Gary uh, likes his two part questions, Roger. So that way you can go into this. I do this narrative. I do. <laughs> I just wanted to know if you're paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I am. So um, but let's go back to to the beginning. So um, uh, we launched Compact Power and and. At the time we bought Merch, they were making a product that we were distributing, a competitor for the Dingo called the Boxer. And so we, and that half of our business, we set up dealers to sell a Boxer. And they might be a John Deere dealer or a Kubota dealer, or you know somebody who was already in the business would add our product line to it and to, to help fill it out. And, uh, and then in many cases, they were smaller, smaller lawnmower dealers, that sort of thing, too, that, that took it on. Uh, and the other part of the business at, at Mertz, we were manufacturing equipment for the oil field. And so going back to 2004, when we acquired them, that business was starting to take back off because a lot of that oil field equipment related to fracking, which was becoming more and more popular. So so the fracking business was growing. I mean, we bought it, at, call it 20 million, and it grew to 100 so in a you know a few years time uh, leading up to 2008, the um, uh, the boxer business was also growing quite rapidly, and we were getting into the Home Depot with that and selling it to them for a tool rental, putting it on trailers and delivering it ready to go at at their stores, as as well as having these dealers. Well, in late 2007, we were we were rocking and rolling on all 
fronts, we thought, but didn't realize quite how many headwinds were headed our way with the housing downturn and the recession that was coming. So we get into 2008 and, and uh, Home Depot uh, starts canceling orders and these dealers start, some of the small ones go bankrupt and we have equipment in their stores on floor plans. So, so suddenly, you know, no orders from the Home Depot, uh, dealers going bankrupt, leaving us with the floor plan money owed to the floor plan companies. And, and we start getting big cancellations from our big customers at Mertz and the oil fill like Halliburton and Schlumberger, uh, or if not cancellations and postponements. So, you know, the, it seemed like the world was suddenly coming to an end. We, we got a lifeline by convincing the Home Depot that if they weren't going to buy the equipment, we would be willing to place it in their stores on a revenue share for rent. And, uh, and in fact, we would even consider buying back everything we had sold them and putting that in their stores for rent and main doing all the maintenance for it. So they gave us a test starting in 2008. And somehow, in spite of the fact that our, our lender, who was CIT at the time, uh, came down on us pretty hard, uh, we managed to keep the business going. And uh, we had that, that's the time when I'm talking to you, Gary, and telling you how tough things are, right? 2008, 2009. And, uh, but the deal with the Home Depot, the test went great. In fact, they, they had us compete with Caterpillar rents for the franchise opportunity to place equipment on their parking lots for rent. And, uh, they liked our performance better than Caterpillar. Now we're, we're, they don't know it, but we're swimming like a duck underneath water, man. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm using my personal credit card to buy trenchers to put out there to, to, uh, to rent on their parking lot. And they chose us over Caterpillar in the middle of all that. So, um, uh, in any case, um, we, we got through that and things started to pick back up in 2009 and 10. And then our next challenge was, you know, we, we've got to a hundred stores where we own the equipment and they, they had 1100 where they wanted us to own equipment and place equipment. And so how do we get from a hundred to 1100, which, was a whole new exercise in raising capital. And, uh, you know, we had to give up the lion's share of the equity in the business to raise the capital to do that or lose the deal. So I found out, you know, the difference between, between owning 10% of something that was worth a lot or 100% of worth of something that wasn't worth very much. And frankly, I liked the 10% worth a lot as it worked out for me, but... Uh, so we sold them the business in 2017 for $265 million was the publicly announced number. Now keep in mind, there was a whole lot of debt that had to be resolved and, and a whole lot of other partners that had to get paid. I had five private equity groups in the capital structure. Mm -hmm. So, but, but we got through all of that by, um, by doing a lot of prayer and by being very persistent and being very persuasive uh, so there's three P's going on there, I guess, prayer, persistence, and persuasiveness, but, uh, um, and just never, ever, ever giving up. And, and some people came along to help us, uh, to put, who believed in the, in the model and put more money into the business. Um, one of the private equity groups out of California, uh, St. Cloud Capital kind of always believed in us. They invested when you did originally, Gary, when your group did, and then invested again in the next round. 
for the for the rental business and uh just had an email from their principal just just the other day a uh, very positive one so you know you make some good friends out of those things yeah uh, kind of well that's the one thing that i have learned roger is uh you learn a lot about the metal of a person when things are really really good uh because that's when i caught my partner embezzling a long time ago <laughs> and when things are really really bad and that's that's what you and i experienced in 08 and 09 is like 09 when ours ours completely blew apart um and but you were still but what i love is persuasive and when you were talking about you know what um What's Scott or Steve, what Steve Cook had talked about, you know, about speaking as if it's already there. Um, I've seen people do that. And at some point I'm like, well, you're you're lying. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it ain't there. And there is a fine line. Yeah. But for you, when things are really bad, there was no spin doctoring at all. You were being very brutally honest and in we were just holding on to uh, whatever thread of anything good at that time because we were just overwhelmed by everything bad that was completely irredeemable gone poof it, it had a different meaning than what Arthur Anderson had <laughs> with the poof company poof went vaporized <laughs> so a different different meaning um but i just want to say thank you because that's really where i really felt like I got to know you. It wasn't even in, you know, test driving the equipment and stuff like that in the, <laughs> the parking lot of, you know, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it was, is when things are really bad and you didn't mince words, you didn't sugarcoat anything. And there, you know, at that point, there were no guarantees. You were, you were doing everything that you could within your power to shed what needed to be shed, you know, Mertz was kind of gone at that point and all that kind of stuff. And you, I forgot how hard that pivot was, you know, between what you were doing before and then really carrying out the, the Home Depot rental equipment thing. That was a pretty big pivot. So anybody listening to this, looking at headwinds and being fearful or whatever, who knows? what we're, you know, who knows what, what we've got tomorrow. We don't know, but a lot of the things that you did um, are, are critical when you hit, when the crap hits the fan, be smart, have wise advisors. I mean, Norman, I got to meet him, gosh, eight years ago, a little bit. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that longevity too, of having people that you trust that are good, you know, you, around you is really critical and being willing to pivot. You said, you know, businesses are a lot more flexible than you think. Right. And, and you had to do that. That's a, that's a pretty demonstrable um, example of what you did to make that happen. You know, Gary, you bring up a really good point about, about that pivot that, you know, we were a manufacturing and distribution business that pivoted into the rental business out of necessity. We, we were sitting there with $4 million worth of inventory we just manufactured and our distributors couldn't take it and Home Depot wouldn't take it. And so we went to Home Depot and said, let us put it on your parking lot and we'll, we'll go in the rental business with you as partners. 
turned out to be the best thing ever. I mean, we never would have built a business of that much value had we stayed in manufacturing and distribution. That rental business, we ended up on you know, 1,100 parking lots of the Home Depot. We had $200 million worth of fleet that we owned. It was all uh, GPS where we could track it and know where it was going. And and uh, we had a system of, of maintenance and repair for it that was second to none, And which is why at the end of the day, they wanted to buy the business from us. But we could have never created that much value had we not had the problem that forced us into a change we didn't even see coming. Um, and so sometimes you just got to embrace it and be thankful for, you know, for, for the headwind. Yeah. Hey, you know, to Ben's point earlier about planning, I, I, there was one thing I should have probably introduced at the moment. So, so I learned this through the years There are five big things that as a leader, I've got to make sure happen in my business. And, and I call it the plan, sell, do, track, tell circle, but it's planning. There has to be proper planning. It's, there's, sort of directional planning, where are we headed? What's our true north? What's our vision, mission, core values? There's strategic planning. What, what are we gonna build here? Um, what what geography are we gonna be in? What model, What's our business model? What, what are we going after? There's tactical. What's our budget for this year? Who, who are, you know, how many crews we're gonna need? How many trucks, et cetera. But there's planning, then there's selling. Somebody's gotta sell something and you gotta be good at your sales and marketing side of the business. You've got to pay attention to that and make sure it happens. There's doing, it's whether you're in service or manufacturing or retail, you've got to actually deliver on whatever it is that you've sold. There's tracking. You've got to have good tracking for the government, for the banks, for your own use as a manager, for your team motivation. You've got to track well. And then finally, there's communication to everybody that needs to know what it is you're doing and how you're doing and where you're headed. So that's communication, telling. And so as a CEO, I had to make sure that I was doing a good job on planning, selling, doing, tracking, and telling. And for me, I had a, I had a really good uh, sales leader who was vice president of business development, had a great COO who took care of all the operations, and a great CFO who took care of the tracking. And so my time was spent mostly in the planning and telling part of that circle. And, uh, and so as a leader in a business, for those of you who may be listening to this and, and are growing a business, keep in mind those five things, planning, selling, doing, tracking, and telling, and figure out what you're best at and what you're going to, what you're going to delegate and what you're going to do. But I would challenge you that, that a, a leader, a CEO in particular, should be spending most of his time in the planning and telling side of, the, of that equation and have really good people doing the selling, doing, and tracking side of that. So that's that's it's pretty um, general, but but it really helps me as I think about what I'm doing every day and what I have my team doing. You know, you said something early on in the podcast, Roger, about being yourself. You know, when we asked you that heartbeat question, and... Um, without having it be about yourself, <laughs> you know? So the freedom to be yourself without having it be about yourself and and then complementary, you know, having complementary skills and people that have complementary skills around you so that you can be your best 
and allow them to be their best. What, how did you come to learn, like, what were the things that were your best and highest usage and where it made sense to bring other people in and, and for their complementary skills? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know that I've ever really thought about that exactly the way you asked the question, but I'll make a run at it. So um, uh, first off, I, I like all five areas of business and uh, I like doing them all. And I've been engaged at one point or another in personally doing each of those. Um, but at some point, I think it came to me, a couple of things came to me along the way. One is if I'm doing the same thing over and over myself and not taking somebody alongside to teach them, I'm never going to break out of where I am and, and get into the, to the next level of business or scale or success. And so whatever it is, I, I, I should not be continuously doing the same thing and be alone while I'm doing it, that I should have people coming alongside me and learning what, I, what it is that I'm doing. And uh, and I would probably say that for me, it became, uh, I ended up delegating those things that I was best able to find other people who were good at. And uh, and I could find people who were good at, at selling the work, could find people who were good at doing it, and I could find people who were good at tracking it. A little more challenging to find someone else that satisfied me and how they planned and strategized and set course, Right. And, and a little bit more challenging to find others who could communicate all of the key things the way I wanted them communicated. So it, it might be that I ended up doing those two things and finding that as my strengths because it was more difficult to find others that could, could do those things to my satisfaction, uh, the, the planning and communicating portion of it. Um, but, you know, look, I've said this before, Gary, that... Um, of all the titles I ever carried, founder is the one I like the best. It's the idea of the joy of, of something that didn't exist, that you can visualize it, going all the way back to the Steve Cook idea that this is really a real thing, it's not just an idea. You can visualize it and then bring it into reality and actually get the opportunity to see it. And a business in particular is such a great, great chance to create a living, breathing thing that brings a lot of joy and a lot of happiness to a lot of people and and sends people to college and pays mortgages and car payments and you know gives people a sense of self-worth i mean i just don't know anything you know in some ways that we get to do you build a house that's pretty awesome it's a place for your family right you build a family that's awesome uh that's, building a business is an, is an awesome thing too right it's something that didn't exist you get to bring it into existence. And I think that, you know, the God that I worship is a creator. And I, I think one of the, when he built us in his image, one of the things he did was give us the ability to create something that look, you look, most animals can't, can't visualize and create something, but we can. And, and what a, what a God given gift to be able to take something that didn't exist and bring it into existence and make it real. So is that, and I know we're skipping ahead, or I'm going to skip us ahead a little bit here. Um, is that what uh, gave you the interest to get into business advising and, and going into other businesses and, and supporting them building companies? And same thing of being board members too. 
Yeah, you know, um, uh, I'm, I am I'm a believer and 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 a Christian, uh, and so that that's critically important to me. I have not always been that, but for, since 1980, I have been. And and uh, so the idea that that there is an eternal aspect to what you're doing, um, not from the same source, but I love Simon Sinek's you know concept of of playing an infinite game. You know, not a finite game, but an infinite game. And so, I think all of that as you know, look, I'm 70, so I'm I'm getting a sense of urgency here about <laughs> what I'm gonna what I'm gonna get get done and get communicated, and so being able to have an impact on somebody else's life who can have an impact on someone else's life, it's you know, it's not an original idea, by the way, but but uh, it's a good idea, and so I think as you, as you age, those things start to matter more to you. Yeah. So I've got a, a question and, and it kind of ties into you advising and, and helping other people in their businesses. But you had mentioned earlier, you've got a, a five-year plan, right? You had a five-year plan of, of the business of what things were going to look like. Um, can you first share with the listeners of what does that process look like? Is it a retreat with, with your board? Is it other leaders in the business getting together? Is it you going off on your own and bringing ideas back? What are what do your planning sessions look like in businesses? Yeah, so I'll just tell you the most recent one, uh, but it's not unlike many others. So I, I learned that um, so any idea that can be built in a group and gain consensus is a lot more powerful than one that you go off into a room or a place and come up with on your own. Um, and so. For example, the Southern Shade Tree Company, which I'm currently involved in, which, by the way, has quadrupled in the last four years in size, um, was has been been led by a great young leader who, like, young to me, he's mid-40s, <laughs> but he's been at it for 20 years, so he was mid-20s when he got started. But uh, So Brent Lovett is, is a brilliant uh, Georgia grad who um, loves landscape contracting and loves business, loves numbers, loves design, all of that. And uh, and he built a business from from scratch after we had sold and gone public and pulled back from that. And I got over in the equipment business. He he built this business pretty much from scratch, and uh, and I backed him in it. And uh, and then when we sold the the equipment business, he came to Norman and myself who were partners with him in this business and said, Hey, you know, I hear you talk about what a, what a great company you had and how you went from good to great. Let's do that here. And, uh, and so can you guys come and spend more time with us now and help us grow this business? And, uh, and so we did. And the first thing we did was to, to sit down and, and hammer out core values and uh, agree on core values. The mission is the one I described earlier. But then we came to vision. What are we going to do with this business? And I recall uh, sitting in a room with with all of the leaders of the business and uh, and talking about the strengths and weaknesses and and the market we were in and 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 out of that conversation came you know what could we do that would make us different from all the other businesses in our industry and, uh, and what is within our reach to achieve. 
but it's a stretch to achieve. And, and we defined what the business is today, which we say our, our vision is, is to be a leader in providing landscape products and services in the two Carolinas to home builders, developers, and property managers. So fairly specific uh, to, to be the to be the leader in that area. And so the company's gone from a you know from 15 million to 60 million in revenue in four years. It's it's gone from being just in Charlotte to being all up and down the coast of the Carolinas and Charlotte and Greenville and Columbia, Monroe. Uh, with an eye towards Raleigh and Greensboro starting next year. So, uh, you know, that vision, that idea that we that we um, crafted together is now is now a reality just four, you know, five years later from the time we had the conversation. And uh, but without it and without that time together, it would have never happened. Right. And and so it's kind of OK, this is where we're headed. We're all we all stacked hands on it. It's kind of a term we use. We stack hands, and and uh, and so we've all been making it happen, making it real, which is really cool. It's pretty awesome. Well, and I know Gary likes using your your farm as a as a business retreat location, coming yeah. coming out and disconnecting the business leaders and and getting everybody together and let them brainstorm and and bring things out. So it essentially is exactly what what you did there. Yeah. Now the specific five-year plan, you know, is, is a matter of a lot of hard work and a lot of back and forth, and you know, arguments about how fast we can grow this business or that business, and you know, negotiation over over next year's specific budget, and and uh, this that's a kind of a fun process with a lot of push and pull. By by the way, I took the business and effectively gave almost half of it away to the employees uh, subject to their being retained through a certain period of time they have, to, they have to stay employed but we've as a result of that we've taken a business that that i owned considerably higher percentage of you know four years ago than i own today but the value of what i still own is is incredibly greater than than what i owned before because the value of the business is so much more and so there's a lesson in that that uh, uh, you know, you, if you get it structured right, the idea that you have a team of people who all are aligned is really incredibly powerful. And the idea of of uh, managing through consensus rather than decree is is uh, it's a lot more work, a lot more effort. But man, you could just go so much further when you're doing your best to manage through consensus. Now there may come a time. When you can't get consensus and then somebody's got to have the courage and power to to issue a decree this is what we're going to do you know but but to the extent you can get it to a consensus it's so much better yeah. so i know we're we're getting towards the end here and i i would be remiss if we didn't at least have a conversation about this can you share with us uh first what give hope global is yeah so um uh, what it is is an organization that supports education and and health initiatives uh, particularly in haiti and ghana and and some of those students are now in the us and and, uh, and elsewhere studying but uh, um we uh, we've been at it for 11 years i've got led into it by my daughter uh, 
when I was trying to check a mission trip off my bucket list in 2011 and 12. And uh, so I thought I would go one time, have some fun with her. And, you know, now I've been to Haiti 40 times and Ghana four and, and uh, uh, it all surprised me at, at how, how involved we got. We created this organization called Give Hope Global in uh, the end of 2012. So we've been at that for 10 full years now. And uh, currently we have community health programs in the city of Lakai, Haiti, which is about five hours from Port-au-Prince, and uh, in, in the city of Pepiasi, Ghana, which is about three hours out of Accra. Uh, we have schools in uh, right outside of Accra in Ghana and uh, outside of uh, Lakai in Haiti. Have a K through um, ninth grade school for about 320 in Ghana, and we have a primary school that has about 60 students in uh, in Haiti. Had, has been as high as 150, but with the unrest there, we've had to limit the the attendance, and it's unsafe to to be traveling very far there now. Uh, we have an online high school for about 80 students uh, that has a kind of a learning lab in our in our compound where students come and and study. And uh, and then we have about 15 kids in college, I guess, uh, four of them here in the U.S., uh, two and two, four in Port-au-Prince and the rest in and around Lakai, who um, are so. Uh, and, and then we have a, a pastor training school in the northern part of Ghana uh, where we uh, we train young pastors to lead churches. And yeah, it's a, we have a small farm in Haiti. We, ha we have some transition homes in Haiti. Uh, we have an orphanage there with about uh, 80 kids and the orphanage has been as high as 160, but some many of those kind of graduated into the transition homes. So yeah, so it's um, it's all about trying to, what we say is we make thoughtful investments and people who have the will and the talent to change their circumstances where they are. So we, we make thoughtful investments in people who have the will and the talent to change their circumstances where they are. So givehopeglobal.org, you can find it on, if, you're, if you want to buy anything that, we, that our artisans produce, uh, we have shophopeglobal.org and givehopeglobal.org. So love to have people go there yeah. uh, stepping at the moment.com is where they can find a link to the book they can buy it from shop over they can buy it from amazon so perfect yeah um state that mission one more time roger because there's a lot of depth into that that applies to <laughs> everybody that's employing people too so say that again yeah so so that's that is our defined strategy. Our defined mission is to give hope and bring lifelong change through the power of the good news, which is the gospel, good health, good education, and good jobs. And so our projects fall into one of those categories, the gospel, health, education, or jobs. But our strategy is to make thoughtful investments in people who have both the talent and the will to change their own circumstances. Uh, so 
there is a lot in that if you unpack it. That, that is rich because if if you think about it, if you're a thoughtful leader of a company, the the potential ripple effect that you have on families, on individuals, families, communities, and nations, quite frankly, hmm. is very, very powerful. And and it does require an investment mindset versus a servitude and lording over mindset. But if you do that and you find people that I always say, did they come with batteries, which is, you know, that have the talent and will, right? To put in the effort. It's not just a handout, you know, handouts really don't work because they create dependency and, uh, you know, an entitled mindset. So I just, I really like that strategy and how it's articulated and it applies way beyond uh, a nonprofit. It does. It's, you know, one of the themes of my book is, is investing in people. There's, there's three primary themes. There is a moment when things come together and you either step into that moment, take advantage of the opportunity, or you step back and miss it. The idea of stepping into the moment. The other is once you've done it, man, you better stick with it and persist until it works because there's there's a perseverance side of things and never, ever quit. And the third is, but it's no fun if you don't invest in people and relationships along the way. And And it's also a great strategy to invest in people and relationships. But a quick story about investing in people. So my wife and I have a young woman whose name is Ernice, E-R-N-I-S-E, who lives with us here and has for the last three years. She's 24, will be in April. And uh, and she is now in her second year at Wingate University and uh, and is making, you know, Dean's List, 3.76 GPA, speaks four languages. And when I met this kid, she pushed her hand, my hand into her belly and said, I'm so hungry. That was in January 2012 and just had so much promise still. And now works, I mean, just like a Trojan in in school, gets every bit of good you can possibly get out of every class. Made a straight 100 on a business uh, um, accounting class yesterday, by the way, down the test. (laughs) Awesome. We're looking. (laughs) We're looking. Yeah. Good investment. So it will be interesting to see. I, you know, she's either going to run a business in Haiti or or, uh, or maybe run Southern Shade Tree someday. We'll see. Oh, wow. How cool. Yeah. Yeah. But investing. Such a, She's such a good investment. And I can give you another hundred cases like it, you know. It's just, right. Yeah. And you can, too. You both probably starting with your own kids. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Roger, thank thank you so much for sharing all of this. I mean, we went all over the place on this, but the amount that you've done and the amount that you're still doing and the impact you're having is tremendous. So I'm sure the listeners will be able to take a lot of that away and hopefully inspire them to be able to do a little bit of the same. Thanks, Ben. I really enjoyed being with you both. 